morning, everyone. It's great to be able to be here and to be bringing God's word. And today we'll be looking at the ascension uh, over Easter. We looked at the death and the resurrection of Jesus as Jesus was lifted up from the grave. Well, today at the ascension, we're going to see Jesus lifted up into heaven itself. And have you ever wondered what Jesus is doing in heaven? I mean, he's been there for 2,000 years. He departed, and we read that in the Gospels and Acts. But what's he been doing? And what are the implications for us? So there's two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the ascension and what actually happened, and then we're going to see what Jesus is doing in heaven. What's he doing in heaven for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us and guide us. Open our ears and our heart to hear what you have us here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the ascension, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Let's draw alongside the disciples and imagine what it was like to be with them. And so we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke towards the end from chapter 24 to verse 50. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles and you're turning to Luke 24 or 50, just as you're doing that, a bit of background. The few verses before we see Jesus give the Great Commission, Luke's Great Commission, to the disciples, where because they have seen Christ suffer, die, and be raised on the third day, just like Scripture said, the disciples will now be his witnesses to all the ends of the world. But they must wait in Jerusalem until they receive power. Straight away we come to verse 50. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while Jesus was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now let's just pause here for a minute. It's very easy to gloss over what's happening as Jesus disappears into the clouds. But what is happening is huge. It's a seismic shift of epic proportions. Now this is groundbreaking and ground-shaking, but we so easily gloss over these last couple of verses of Luke. And so what do I mean? Why are, this, why are the disciples and what they're doing so radically different? Well, it's because clearly the first two commandments are being violated by the disciples. The first two commandments is that you shall have no other God and you shall worship nothing, nobody but this God. And yet here we see the disciples worshipping Jesus and Jesus not correcting them. I mean, what's happening here? And not only this, we see something similar with Thomas, doubting Thomas. And we see this account at the end of John. And you may remember Thomas's story. Thomas is not there in the first resurrection appearance, and so he doubts the disciples. He just can't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. But then Jesus appears a second time, and we pick this up in Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it under my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And again, Thomas is breaking that first commandment. You shall have no other gods. He says, not only are you my Lord Jesus, but you are my God. 
And Jesus does not correct him. Jesus accepts these words of adoration, these words of worship. So with Thomas and, and here in the ascension that we're looking at today, we clearly see the disciples violating the first two of the Ten Commandments. And, and how can this be? How can, they, how can they do this? Well, they can do this because Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus did what he said he was going to do, die for our sins and be raised on the third day. And this is why the disciples, and this is why we, can worship Jesus. From the ascension, when we see the disciples worshiping Jesus, how we relate to our Heavenly Father has changed forever. How we worship Him, how we pray to Him, how we delight in Him, how we serve Him is all completely changed because of our worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens next in Luke is just as important. In verse 52, we see the disciples worshiping. Jesus, but in 53 we read, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And so we see that it's a both and. We do not shift our allegiances from our Heavenly Father to Jesus. We worship Jesus to the glory of our Heavenly Father. We worship our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done and the door that he has opened up for us. What a joy it is to worship the resurrected and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have one of the biggest criticisms labelled at the Christian faith. Because just like Muslims and Jewish folk, we claim to worship one God and one God only. And yet the Muslims and Jews, they look at us worshipping Jesus and with disgust, with disdain, they point to the first two commandments and say, you cannot worship Jesus. And our reply is, as we point to this passage and say, we follow the disciples' example, we follow the clear teaching in the New Testament that Jesus can be worshipped. Well, there may be a knock on our door, not during lockdown, but there may be a knock on our door and there are two Mormons or two Jehovah's Witnesses standing there and what they will say is, you cannot please God and worship Jesus at the same time. Christian, you must stop worshipping Jesus. And our reply is the same. We point to this example and say, look at the disciples worshipping Jesus. Look at the teaching of the New Testament. We will worship Jesus, the living God. So this then is the first implication of the ascension. This whole area is opened up where we can worship Jesus with joy. Now what's the second implication of the ascension? Well, we need to leave Luke's account here in his gospel and turn to his account in Acts. Luke wrote not only a gospel, but he wrote the book of Acts. And in chapter 1, he expounds, he, he tells us more about the ascension, and it starts in, in verse 9. Again, a little bit of a background to Acts 1, verse 9. In the preceding verses, those with Bibles will be able to see again Jesus repeating the Great Commission. This time he's making it very clear that they're receiving power is because they will receive the Holy Spirit as they wait in Jerusalem. Anyway, from verse 9, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus 
who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And like the empty tomb, we have people dressed in white, this time miraculously appearing. And again, we have to join the dots. We're not told they're angels, but clearly they are because of the dressed in white and the miraculous appearance. And these angels have some very important things to help us understand the ascension. Two things. First of all, they say that Jesus is going into heaven. And second of all, they say in the same way that he has gone, he will return. This is very important for two reasons. First of all, for the disciples, Jesus has been appearing for the last 40 days. He's met them in the upper room and by the lake, and he's been explaining uh, scriptures, opening up scriptures, explaining the meaning of his death and resurrection. But no more. From the ascension, Jesus will not be appearing to the disciples. Things have changed. Now, this is more than compensated because 10 days from the ascension is Pentecost and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. But now, Jesus, the resurrect Jesus, will not be returning to them. He has gone into heaven. So that's the first thing, important thing that the angels tell us. The second important thing is that Jesus, as he has gone in the physical body into the clouds, likewise, he will return. Jesus will come again. Now, Jesus had taught this to his disciples, and you can pick that up in the Gospels. But the angels remind us that what is happening today, either in 1st century or 21st century, is not going to continue forever. One day, Jesus will come down, and things will change forever. So we have this big scope of history. From this day, Jesus rose into heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came, and believers have had the Holy Spirit in them for the last 20 centuries, for the last 2,000 years. And then one day, Jesus will come again. History, 101, except we know how it's going to turn out. So that's really important to us. And so just to tie up the ascension, there's two things we've looked at today. First of all, the first implication is a real encouragement and a, an authority and a basis to worship Jesus with joy alongside the disciples. And second of all, as we stand with the disciples and see Jesus disappear, we are reminded that likewise, he will reappear. Now, there's much more that can be said. The Bible has a lot to say about Jesus' second coming, but for now, we are reassured that he will return. So let's turn aside now from the ascension and think about what happened when Jesus arrived in heaven. So let's move from the grass-covered hill just outside Jerusalem, and let's, in our mind's eye, take us up to the gates of heaven themselves. And Jesus has ascended. So so what does he do? What happens? And we can find out by turning to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. So what's Jesus doing now in heaven? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
You see, when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished and breathed his last, he offered up his life as the perfect sacrifice. His blood has opened the way for you and I to be right with God. And so he's ascended to heaven, having made that perfect sacrifice, and sits down at the right hand of God. This is why in Hebrews chapter 12, we read these wonderful words. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, isn't that wonderful? I mean, it's glorious news, isn't it? And if you turn to Revelation and you see that great vision that John the Apostle saw, you see the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain, sitting on the throne of God. Now, this sitting on the right of God is much more than a a physical orientation. It's actually symbolic for the power and the authority of the king. For someone to sit on the right-hand side of the king was to mean that person had immense power and authority in the kingdom. Think back to Genesis and Joseph. When Joseph had been raised up by the Pharaoh to be prime minister, Joseph was at the right of the Pharaoh and had the exact authority and power of the Pharaoh himself. When Joseph spoke, it was like Pharaoh was speaking. Pharaoh even gave Joseph a ring with a seal on it so that any legal documents would be as from Pharaoh himself. So in the same way that Joseph was prime minister and all-powerful in in Egypt, even more so, Jesus, who sits on the right hand of God, has all the power of his heavenly father, coexistent, co-powerful, co-majestic with his loving father. So that's what sitting at the right means. Now, we have a question here. Now that we've established that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God, there's a really important point to make. Though Jesus resides with his Father in heaven, Jesus also resides within every believer. How can this be? Well, this is the whole point of Pentecost. Jesus sent his Spirit so that his Spirit makes Jesus real and alive to us. And we see this oh, in Galatians. Wonderful passage in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And like I said, how can this be if Jesus is on the right hand of the throne of God? Well, it's because of the Holy Spirit lives in us, makes Christ alive to us. Jesus said this himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he said this to his disciples. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is saying here, I will send you the Counselor, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will testify in your heart about me. He will make me real to you. The Holy Spirit actively makes Jesus alive to us, empowers us to follow God, to please Jesus, to serve him. So even though Jesus is at the right 
of his heavenly father. His Holy Spirit makes Jesus alive and vibrant in our lives. So this is the first thing that Jesus is doing in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand after offering the perfect sacrifice and has sent his Holy Spirit to make himself alive to us. Now the second thing that Jesus does while he's in heaven is that he intercedes for us. And we see this in Romans. Romans Romans chapter 8 verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. So you notice that again? Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is at the right hand of God and that he is interceding for us. And we catch a a glimpse of what Jesus is praying for us when we have a look at Luke. Luke chapter 22, verse, verse 31. And Jesus is talking is talking to Peter, and he says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and that when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. And Jesus' prayer for us is similar. Jesus is praying that we will be strengthened so that we can strengthen others. Jesus is praying when we stray, which we do, when we stray, Jesus is praying for us to come back to the fold. He's praying blessings on us so that we can bless others. He's praying comfort on us so that we can comfort others. This is what Jesus is praying for us. And it's especially encouraging during these uncertain days. As the COVID-19 pandemic turns the world's life upside down, and for some of us, Two things have changed, but we are on Jesus' prayer list and Christ is praying that we will be strengthened and that we will strengthen others. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to be on Jesus' prayer list? But that's not all his intercession means. He's not just praying for our strength so we can strengthen others. He's not just praying for us when we stray. He's also praying for us when we sin. And we see this in the epistle of John. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So what the apostle John is saying here is, is Christian brothers and sisters, don't sin. But if you do... You have an advocate in heaven, Jesus himself. So how does this work? Well, if we go back a couple of verses to 1 John 1 verse 9, we see how this works. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so what we have here is this wonderful dynamic, a powerful dynamic of how we are forgiven. So what happens is, as a believer, repents and comes and confesses, either to Jesus or to his heavenly Father, it doesn't matter. And then Jesus leans over and says, Father, forgive that believer. And it's not like it's not like Jesus leans over and says, oh, well, Douglas has sinned, but it's not really a big sin, and maybe we'll just ignore it this time. That's not what Jesus says. That's not how he prays for us when we sin. He leans over to his heavenly father and says, 
Father, look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my feet. I've paid the price. I've taken the punishment that Douglas deserves. He has no debt to pay. And then with joy, with joy, our Heavenly Father then forgives that repentant believer. Isn't it a wonderful three-way dynamic between a humbled Christ follower, Christ who prays for him or her, and Heavenly Father who delights to forgive? And we can be forgiven because not only did he pay, Jesus pay with the price of his blood, but he prays for us and intercedes for us. So these are the two things that Jesus is doing heaven. There is a third. The first thing is he is sitting at God's right and by his Holy Spirit, Jesus is being made alive to us. That's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus is interceding for us. The third thing is that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And we see this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. John, chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So here, Jesus is saying God's house, God's mansion has many rooms and that he is going to prepare a place for his disciples. This, of course, is the night before he is crucified. And so it has very real and dramatic impact on the disciples. But it's just the same for us. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And what joy when we reach the gates of heaven and Christ personally meets us and invites us into the place that he has prepared for us. Isn't it a wonderful hope? A wonderful future. I mean, we think uh, we are citizens of this world. We may have a New Zealand passport. We may have a New Zealand birth certificate. And yet we are only transitioning through this world. We are pilgrims. To use an old world word, we are aliens. We are refugees who are going to a better place. And so to the question, what is Jesus doing in heaven? Well, the answer is very clearly Jesus is very busy. So let's sum up what we've covered this morning. Well, we've stood with the disciples as Jesus disappeared into the clouds and we saw them worship their Lord. And we're reminded that because Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, and did what he said he would do, die for our sins, he is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be adored, worthy to be worthy to be praised. And there's this wonderful passage that I'll read from Philippians that reminds us of this, Philippians Chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Now that's a direct reference to the, to the ascension. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave Jesus the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. On Good Friday Jesus went under the earth. On Resurrection Sunday and for the next 40 days he was on the earth. And of course now he is above the earth in heaven and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father so that's the first thing we've learned about the ascension is that it is good and right and proper 
and that it pleases our Heavenly Father to worship Jesus. We've also been reminded by the angels that just as Jesus left, he will return physically in the body in some historical point in time. And we long for that day that Jesus Christ returns. And then we changed our perspective. We left the disciples staring up towards heaven and we went to heaven ourselves and we saw Jesus enter and sit at the right hand of God. Having offered the perfect sacrifice that gives us open access to our Heavenly Father's heart, Jesus sits at the right hand of God, coexistent, co-equal, co-magnificent with his Father, all-powerful in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And there Jesus intercedes for us. He prays that we will be strengthened so we can strengthen others. He prays for us when we stray. He prays for us when we confess so that we are forgiven. And finally, Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for you and I. And we think of some of our loved ones who have gone on before us, the loved ones who have believed in Jesus, knowing that they are safe in their rest in their heavenly Father's home. And that one day, we will join them. And so, as we bring this message to an end, how can our hearts not be gladdened? How can we not rejoice in the Jesus Christ who was not only risen from the grave but also risen into heaven and sits there and advocates, intercedes for us and prepares for us a place? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have stirred our hearts to honour and worship Jesus more. Build our faith. Give us a clearer vision of who Jesus is. Make him more real to us. In Jesus' name. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.